0: Welcome to the Open Book Unbound podcast. Morning Margie. Hi Claire, how are you today? Super excited, nearly at book festival time. (laughs) I know, it's funny how... You know having thought that nothing was going to happen in August and gone
1: through an almost mini depression about how it's going to be so quiet in Edinburgh in August, I suddenly feel excited again, or feel the excitement building, I don't know about you.
0: I think it was the programme launch was when it started for me, you know once it went live um, and I could sit and not quite the same as flicking through the paper copy and of course this year unlimited spaces on every event and all the tickets are free so i've certainly hooked into and signed up to a lot more than i would have if i'd been going in person
1: I know. And it's that same excitement. Remember years ago, I and mean, this is how we got into Open Book, remember, but sitting with the program, you and I together and starring different things and working out which ones we could go to together, which ones we would take our kids to, which ones we might let other people in our family go to and support <laughs> by staying home and cooking the food or whatever. And then, you know, remember having to work out whether we could get down there in time and back in time, but whatever, how many you could fit in during the day, which was really funny. And I guess... One of the benefits of watching them all from your house or wherever is, you know, you don't have that travel time, you don't have the babysitting, you don't have that kind of thing, so there's no excuse not to log in. All those events we missed because we couldn't make it there within the five minutes to spare.
0: And the other thing I was hearing, which I didn't know about, is that all the events um, where the authors have given permission will be on the Book Festival's YouTube channel for a month. So even if you aren't able to log in to the event when it's actually going out, you can still catch it which is great especially when you look at the program and you see two things that you want to go to at the same time
1: yeah exactly that that would have been great in years past so I feel a little bit of nice excitement in a way that I hadn't anticipated it's like a bonus which feels really nice so yeah I can't wait and I particularly can't wait for the event that involves the text we're going to be reading today I'm so delighted to be asked to chair and I think all you out there will work out why maybe I've been asked to chair this event because it involves my home country Iran so that's exciting and I hope. You'll all tune in as well. It's happening on Wednesday the 19th at 11.30.
0: And if you're interested in seeing what else is on at the Book Festival that we've particularly picked out, we've had the fun and joy and pleasure of choosing a few pieces and a few programme picks, and they're all in our newsletter, which you can find on our website, openbookreading.com. Now, they are just our personal picks that we thought might be fun and might be interesting. We'd also like to know about any of yours that you really would recommend or have rated or really enjoyed, because we'll have that whole month to catch your favourites on YouTube afterwards, too.
1: And we're doing a little things a little differently um, at Open, but during the festival. And normally our groups run in Charlotte Square if they're running, and we tend to have a group also every day in the bookshop. We obviously can't do that this year, but we're, we're not running our usual shared reading groups as we have been throughout the lockdown, but we are going to run a couple of extra sessions around kind of catching up after events and talking about what we thought about them. A bit like that cup of tea you might have with friends after an event or at Open Book when we have our days out, we tend to go back to the party pavilion and have a cup of tea and talk about what we saw and talk about what's coming so that's the hope is that we'll, we'll get together in those events and, and get your feedback so it's a way to actually feel like you've been at the event with a friend but I suppose there's no reason if you're not shielding for you to not get together and, and watch something together Claire I have a feeling you and I'll be doing that so yeah can't wait for that too can't wait to see some of you in those sessions
0: too and all the information about when they're happening again is in that newsletter
1: so shall we get into this week's text? It's not one of the commissions. We'll be back to the commissions soon. But it is a terrific book called The Enlightenment of the Green Gauge Tree by an Iranian author, Shukhfei Hazar. And she is um, the first Iranian author to make the Booker Prize shortlist. And I should say it's the Booker International Prize shortlist. And it's a story about Iran, and it takes place in Iran. So no prizes for working out why I've been asked to chair it. But I'm really pleased to include it in our our podcast and talk about it this week so we can't wait to hear what you think about it too
0: one of the things that i noticed when i was reading the book yesterday which really caught my breath and made me think about it again is there's a little note on the front that is translated from the persian but inside there's a little subscript saying that the translator is not named or acknowledged in this book for their own safety that made me stop me short and made me think about you know the risks that that person has taken in giving us access in english to this book
1: Yeah, and I think even in the very first part of the reading, you'll hear why that might be so... In my experience, you know, no matter how bland or how factual you are reporting something that happened in Iran or other countries where there's a sort of crisis or conflict, there's an opportunity for the current government to take it the wrong way. So even if you read the book or hear what we're talking about today and think, well, that, you know, there's nothing controversial about that. There's always the danger that it could be taken in a different way. And so I think safety is paramount for the people who are doing translating, but also the writers themselves. And I think once you start to dabble, you know, there's always a risk. Even I think about that with my own work, which really doesn't say anything controversial at all on purpose. Um, I think there's always the risk that someone could read something into it. So, yeah, that's a really good thing to point out.
0: And I suppose the last thing to say before we get started is that the version we are reading today in the podcast is a slightly abridged version, only because we were given the whole of the first chapter to use and it's a little bit long for our podcast, but we will be putting the full first chapter into the newsletter so if you want to read the full chapter or find out the small section that we've omitted you'll find it there
1: and the other thing to note is we're not doing poems to my horror but we're not doing poems this week and we have picked out a couple of poems that pair well with the first chapter if you're doing them in groups or want to read them yourselves they are of um, poets who are appearing in the festival so go and find them please all right enough of a long preamble we'll get started will i read us the first bit claire yes please. Chapter 1. Beta says that Mom attained enlightenment at exactly 2.35 p.m. on August 18th, 1988, atop the grove's tallest green-gauge plum tree on a hill overlooking all 53 village houses, to the sound of the scrubbing of pots and pans, a ruckus that pulled the grove out of its lethargy every afternoon. At that very moment, blindfolded and hands tied behind his back, Suhrab was hanged. He was hanged without trial, and unaware he would be buried en masse with hundreds of other political prisoners early the next morning in a long pit in the desert south of Tehran without any indication or marker, lest a relative come years later and tap a pebble on a headstone and murmur, there is no God but God. Beda says Mom came down from the tallest green-gauge tree and, without looking at Beda, who was filling her skirt with sour green-gages, walked towards the forest saying, this whole thing is not at all as I'd thought. Beda wanted Mom to explain, but Mom, as though mesmerized like someone with forest fever, what I call forest melancholia, walked with a steady step and hollow gaze into the forest, to climb up the tallest oak, where she sat on its highest bough for three days and three nights in the sun, rain, moonlight and fog, looking with bewilderment at the life she was seeing for the first time. Just as mom reached the highest branch, perched to view her own life, the complex lives of family, both distant and near, the events of that big five-bedroom house in that five-hectare grove Razan, Tehran, Iran, and then suddenly the whole planet and universe. Beda ran to the house and announced that though still harbouring a mania for fireflies, Mom also now had a mania for heights. At first, none of us took her new infatuation seriously, but when midnight had come and gone and there was still no sign of her, first I, then Dad, then Beda, carrying a lantern, went and sat down under the tree. We lit a fire upon which we placed a zinc kettle so the fragrance of our smoked tea would fill the Jurassic-age Hyrcanian forest, the last of its kind, and lure Mom down. The fragrance of the northern smoked tea reached Mom's nostrils as she was traversing the Milky Way, watching the stars and planets spinning and orbiting with astonishing order, every rotation of which split open a space in which scientists hopelessly searched for the sign of god from up there perched on stardust gazing down at an earth no bigger than a tiny speck she came to the same conclusion she had reached that day at precisely 2:35 p.m. it's not worth it life isn't what she'd thought life is precisely what she and others were prodigiously killing the moment itself a moment carrying in its womb the past and future, just like the lines on the palm of one's hand, in the leaf of a tree, or in her husband Shang's eyes. Around five o'clock the next morning, Dad, Bida and I woke up in the thick morning fog to see the last foxes returning to their dens after hunting Razan's chickens and roosters and to feel the wings of the Hoopie just inches away. Mum had once again returned to the highest bough from her peregrination amongst the planets and cities, villages, islands and tribes in time to hear the song of a thousands and thousands of sparrows and to see a hedgehog curl up and roll down the forest slope because Dad had moved. We took all our places at the same time, us around the fire, Mum up in the tree, Sohrab in the pit alongside hundreds of other corpses. After all, the executioners were so overwhelmed, they'd been unable to bury the bodies in time as planned. But the first killed were the lucky ones. In the following days, the number of people executed increased so much that corpses piled high in the prison backyard and began to stink, and Evans, ants, flies, crows, and cats, who hadn't had such a feast since the prison was built, licked, sucked, and picked at them greedily. Juvenile political prisoners had the good fortune to be pardoned by the imam if they fired the final shot that would put the condemned out of their misery. With bruised faces, trembling hands and pants soaked with urine, hundreds of 13 and 14-year-olds whose only crime had been participating in a party meeting, reading banned pamphlets or distributing flyers in the street, fired the last shot into faces that were sometimes still Watching them with twitching pupils. When Dad called out with his cheery morning voice that it was time for tea with Kondak bread, he was sure Mum wasn't going to forget her latest craze. That's why he added hastily, If there's one thing we inherited from our forefathers, it's this mania a mania for new things, for impossible things. Then gradually the morning fog got thicker and thicker blurring out the three of us with our lantern, fire, and tea kettle, and allowing mom another opportunity to travel through a world that contained a planet which, despite all its vastness and countries and religions and books and wars and revolutions and executions and births and this oak tree, she had just realized was nothing but a minuscule speck in the universe.
0: Well, I stopped there. Yeah, gosh, there's a lot to talk about in that first section.
1: I know. I'm not surprised, but always shaken back into that idea of how mothers have a connection to children, that moment, that 2.35pm moment in the story that we're opened with. You know, you hear that all the time, that or stories of that between twins or parents, that somehow a parent knows something that's happening that they they shouldn't know. Did you think that was what was happening there too?
0: Yeah, and actually it reminded me of when I was younger and I used to go out and my mum would tell me that she would, you know, when I was 18, still living at home, but first allowed to sort of go out or take the car or whatever. And my mum would tell me she would wake without exception, 30 seconds before I walked back in the front door, regardless of what that time was. And it just really caught my breath a little bit, just reading that 2.35 moment.
1: It's a really interesting opening to a story, isn't it? She doesn't hold off for her reader. We're very quickly into, which we'll talk about in a minute, Sohrab and what's happened to him. But we also have this incredibly lush, or I have this incredibly lush image of an old wood and green gauges and tea and planets. You know, It's a kind of really interesting mix to begin with. It's not one thing or another, really.
0: I think it makes the reader work quite hard at the beginning because you're just trying to catch on to who Beta is and she doesn't give you a huge amount of explanation. It very much hooks you in so that you're working hard right from the start. And keeping up with the narrative, keeping up with the author.
1: But for me, it sucks you in too. So it's not off-putting. Sometimes, you know, we'll start a story or read a story and it takes a long time to actually get in. But I think for me, immediately, you're up in the top of the tree, looking down at the 53 houses in the village, you're, you know, you're in, you you know, so much already. So I'm not put off by it. But as you say, it's dense, you know, it requires have thought very early on you're not sort of sucked along on a happy journey
0: for me it's exactly what I want from a piece of fiction I want to be taken somewhere else and it, it does this immediately as you say there's some books that you talk about oh it took me a while to get into it but I really enjoyed it When I, I mean I was into this from the second sentence
1: but I guess like looking at it you know in the very first paragraph we've got this beautiful image of sitting at the top of the grove's tallest tree and then in that same paragraph we know that Sohrab has been hanged in that very first paragraph, without even giving us much, we've got both mixed together, this beautiful image and this horrible image intertwined, which I feel like is probably a kind of metaphor for the whole of the book, you know, the beauty and horror all intertwined, you know, and even in the first paragraph, she's telling us what her mother has discovered, you know, this great truth, which I want to come back to in a minute. One of the things I wanted to say, having read this aloud, and this happens a lot in our groups, it's very hard to read aloud. Sometimes you don't notice that when you're reading to yourself, because you don't notice, I mean, obviously, you notice the language and things. And I don't know whether it's because it's been translated into English, and I I should say it's been translated into American English. It's not just me saying, Mom, it's American English. But it's also that the length of the sentence is is incredibly long. So there's no room for breath when you're reading out loud, which I really noted, made me really notice it in a way that I might not have, or I certainly didn't notice when I was reading it to myself in preparation. And it makes it feel kind of lyrical or mystical or kind of a fairy tale. It gives a kind of fairy tale feel to it for me. I don't know about you.
0: Definitely. I was just going to say it it has a little bit of a feel already. And we're only sort of maybe five paragraphs in of that sort of magical, mystical, ancient Persian Arabian Nights type storytelling. You know, I really try and resist immediately putting a book in its box and assigning a genre to it. But there is certainly a sense at this stage, in a way, of it being a story that's kind of wrapped in mystery and myth. It's not going to be laid out on a plate for us. We are going to have to work to get all the detail if, if we want to understand truly what happened. What I was interested in is how much of it, obviously not the, the hanging, but the geographical descriptions and the tea and was resonating with you as you were reading it. Because you quite often talk about some of the things, you know, the family sitting around tea and sharing bread. And those are things that you will talk about from your time and your memories of being in Iran. I mean,
1: I absolutely can picture, you know, the sitting around and the tea and everything else. And I guess for me, I grew up in Tehran in the city. So our house wasn't traditional in the sense of being a traditional Iranian house, but it might be what you might expect. But we also had a bit of land near the Caspian Sea. And I think the plan was to build a beach house on it, which we obviously never did. So we had quite a small house there. But what happened there is we lived a life outdoors and an awful lot more. And this these images of like a grove of trees. It, my memory is that, you know, the house that we stayed in, there was a grove of trees between our house, which was a really like a little beach house, and the sea itself. And I loved playing in that grove of trees. There was a big rose garden. As a little girl, that was my map. You know, I knew I had the rose gardens and I knew I had the grove of trees to get to the beach, but also we would go out to the beach for the day and have all sorts of things out there. You know, this, there was a real tea ceremony and everyone would spread out big blankets, probably not that dist- Similar to the way things are done in Britain, except that it was blinking hot. And have tea, you know, there was a whole tradition of sitting cross legged around on this blanket, or almost as if you were sitting at a table, but sitting cross legged. And that makes me think of, you know, things like when foreigners came, like my grandparents' chairs were brought out to the beach, because God forbid you would ask me, you know, my grandpa or granny from Ohio to sit cross legged on the beach. But of course, they did that in other places, because they, you know, they, they knew they would. That kind of, the, the particular fruits make me think of, of home. And I remember the first time my dad came to visit here in the UK and it was spraying and there were green gauges and apricots in the store. Unremarkable for you, I'm sure, Claire, but totally remarkable in the States. You didn't get fresh apricots. And certainly I had never seen a green gauge since Iran until I came here. And my dad was so pleased to see these fruits again. But the idea that you would sit around under a tree as a way of luring someone down and make their tea, it's a very particular cultural thing. which makes I'm grinning. You probably can't here, but it makes me grin, thinking, yeah, of course it's tea that's going to bring someone down <laughs>
0: out of the tree. And I have a green-grained tree in my garden, and I actually took a little wander down to have a look at it, and uh, I was just thinking, oh, I wonder how easy that tree is to climb, and I didn't climb into it, but that section of the book just kind of tripped me off to go and have a look and to feel a connection, I guess.
1: I, I, don't, I don't want to shy away from the difficult bits in that first paragraph, with that kind of idea of, you know, having someone in your family be hanged and and obviously that what's flagged up for me in that first paragraph is this is written with a different kind of knowledge our narrator knows more than the people in the story know for sure but also more than almost anyone would know because none of the families of the people that this happened to would know the circumstances of their death and we've been very lucky as a family to not have any of our um, anyone go through this experience obviously lots and lots of people we knew um, have had that experience in their family of someone disappearing in the night and never being seen from again or heard from again but, but they would never be party to this kind of information about the moment that someone died or the circumstances of their death, they would disappear and that's it. you know so we can talk about that in a minute, but also it gives us tells us something about the narrator here and the mystical nature of the story that' we're, you know somehow we know more than we should. But I really recognize that description of teenagers and that was you know, we left before this period, although there was a real fear when we were there of the Shahs, guards and people disappearing in the middle of the night because of the secret service coming to get you. But after we left, I have uncles who are oddly not very much older than me because my dad's the oldest of a big family. And so the two youngest are boys and there was always the fear that they would be sent off or that they would get caught with some material or whatever. I mean, that, that's a proper fear and something that happened to lots and lots of people something as silly as reading a pamphlet or being out in the street at the wrong time or as a young woman being caught with a man or without without someone in your family escorting you things that we would consider not even misdemeanors in this culture were enough for you to disappear so um, I recognize that idea that people live with that kind of fear and the kinds of things that you are frightened of being caught doing are so unremarkable that it kind of undermines your sense of confidence you know feel I feel I should say that's something that I definitely recognize and it feels you know barbaric it feels almost unbelievable as unbelievable as the rest of the conversation about the planets and the stars
0: and yet it's
1: absolutely true so that's an interesting contrast i think
0: and that's one of the things i feel that is really done so well in this book is that making you work out what parts of it you believe what parts of it are true story and what parts of it are you know the mythical weaving of, of stories, of ancient tales and I think sometimes you're reading along, accepting something and then suddenly you come to a part where you think oh wait a minute, that didn't actually happen or that didn't happen as literally as it's written here. She wasn't balancing on stardust. I think it's the contrast between the blatantly true and the not so blatantly true is part of the joy of, of the reading and I think that's part of what takes you so far in away to a different place
1: And what you want to believe, right? So I would much prefer to believe that she's Balancing on Stardust, then you know you're lucky if you're one of the ones who's killed first in this scenario. That's a much harder truth. My brain is much happier with her balancing on Stardust. But you know, I know that not just me because of my background, but people will have read about you know this circumstance or this particular prison. Avina's um, notorious for being the worst, you know, the worst and the one people disappear to and just never heard from again. So it reminds me of Holocaust, really. You know, the idea that you were the the first ones, strangely or somehow lucky, and and that the young are are engaged to help with the work and that there are places that are worse you know as if you could have levels of worse than others but that there are so reading that not only rings a bell but reminds me of the stories that we now know from the, the Jewish holocaust it's, it's tough and then we're and then we're immediately out of that although we have as we mentioned earlier abridged a little bit but we're immediately out of that and back under the tree you know with dad bringing us some tea and trying to smoke her out, basically.
0: But I think in a way that feels like a little bit of a device of the author to just keep us engaged with the awfulness of it all. Because I think if it was just as brutal as it's portrayed in that paragraph... That we've just read if that was the whole the book continued to write in that way and record and report in that way i think in a way you almost become immune when you read it your brain can't really cope with processing the atrociousness of it over an extended time and i think what this effectively does is it gives us a little breathing space to process what we've just read and to acknowledge the awfulness before then bringing the next section into the story for us so we read on and see what comes yeah at the age of 44, Mom suddenly became old. Her hair turned grey, and Beta, who was the first one in the house to see her in three days, yelled, An old woman just arrived. When Dad and I ran to see her, Mom had positioned herself on the living room couch and was filing her left thumbnail with mysterious calm. Mom's three day enlightenment in the tree suddenly gave me an idea. Mom had just been filing her right thumbnail when I gathered all my books from the bookcase. Smiling at all of them, I told them that if something went missing from the house, to know it was I who had taken it. Then, to an astonished look from Beta, Mom's otherworldly stare, and Dad's usual smirk without a backward glance, I went to Dad's workroom and grabbed what I needed a hammer. Nails, saw, and twine. It took five days to build my tree house the way I wanted, that is, where it couldn't be seen, at the highest point of the tallest oak tree in the forest, the same tree that until an hour ago was the site of Mom's ascension. It had a window facing the sunrise and a door facing its setting, with a small balcony facing the house and a rope railing. A big tarp covered the roof and all the branches so that on rainy days and nights it would produce the same sound I had loved all thirteen years of my life. A tarp that every summer, prior to Sorab's arrest, was spread out over the wooden shelves and cellar floor for silkworm production. There the worms spent a full two weeks eating mulberry leaves till, dreaming of butterflies, They spun their cocoons and then, unbeknownst to them, were drowned and boiled in a big vat. From their cocoons, white silk threads would be spun that only some of the wealthy carpet sellers in the cities of Isfahan, Nain and Kashan could afford. They gave this silk thread to destitute carpet weavers who couldn't leave their dank basements for even a minute during the day to greet the sun. They only knew one thing how to weave silkworm dreams. Sitting on the green sofa across from Mom and looking at her absently filing her nail, Dad thought that although he, a skilled tar player, was the source of the family's silkworm production and indisputable heir of the ability to interact with supernatural creatures, he had never been fortunate enough. See Mom in flight. When Dad saw Mom for the first time heading down to Darbrand Park, she was barely 17 and in the throes of an impossible love. A love that, for the first and last time, allowed her to soar over Nasser Hothrow Street, over passers by and second hand booksellers. Just six months before meeting Dad, she had had another significantly more exhilarating encounter, but one without a future. It was so exhilarating that from then on, and for the rest of her life, she heaved sighs like no other. They were long and deep and as concealed as possible, but not to the extent that in all those years Dad hadn't noticed. At twenty-five, Dad fell so intensely in love with Mom, Rosa, and at first sight, that at the end of that very same day, a night among Darban's foggy nights, he married her, in a daze, and in the presence of a passing mullah who, fearful of dark spectres and fog, was muttering prayers as he rushed, oil lamp in hand, down the slope. Having received his twenty tomans, and a tip. The mullah didn't even linger long enough to behold the young couple's passionate first kiss. Dad placed a dogwood berry in mom's mouth and said, let's go and introduce you to my family.
1: So I feel like in this bit, we finally get a little bit more about the I. So a 13 year old, I assume a girl, but I don't know why I've assumed a girl. So suddenly we have a context for the voice, which is really helpful in some way. I don't know if you think it's a she, but I love this story that she decides to go out and build a treehouse in the very spot where her mother has been sitting. And it only just occurred to me when you were reading it there that maybe she's doing that so her mother will stop going up into the tree. Is that what you thought she was doing?
0: I wondered if she was doing it to give her mom a safer place. But it feels a bit like she's kind of exerting some ownership of that tree too. So sort of saying it's not just mum's tree now, I've got my treehouse there.
1: Yeah, no, I thought it was a bit like, well, this is my space now, so you're going to have to find yourself another tree. Or maybe that'll stop mum coming down. Although it does, the description of the tarp that she uses, which is so for something else, maybe makes you think, well, that would be a comfort to her to have that above her. You know, if the brother is lost, you know, then maybe knowing that it was there would remind her in a good way. I don't know.
0: And the fact she's put a rope railing up. I think, was what made me think. She doesn't strike me as the sort of person who necessarily needs one. I felt the rope railing was for someone else.
1: That's really nice, yeah. And that idea of looking looking for the sun where the sun comes is really nice as well. I felt like it was a... You know, sometimes in crisis, you just need a task. And I feel like there's something about the mother kind of... Either is going off the rails or having a moment or whatever... There's something about that that she doesn't have any control over. So that for me is the moment for the young girl who just needs something to do with her hands. You know, it's a bit like the knitting that you took up or whatever. Sometimes people just need something to do with their hands in a moment of, of crisis. So it felt like it just, she just needed a project, but it tells me so much about the family. And I love, this is the moments where I want to smile, where she says, if
0: things are missing in the house, I've taken them, <laughs> which is not the, what,
1: what would be happening in our
0: house. Yeah, it's very much don't bother looking for them. They're not lost. Yeah,
1: exactly. Which I love. You know, I love that kind of, um, you know, if things are missing in my house, I'll tell you what, it's absolutely my children who've taken them and they deny it like anything. So this idea tells you something about the family.
0: For me, it, it dropped that little idea of I sort of associate with Persian culture of there being jinns who get the blame for everything, you know, the the bad spirits. And, and that if something had gone missing, it would be more likely that the family would be blaming a jinn who'd come in and taken whatever. And she's saying, don't worry, the house isn't occupied by bad spirits. It's just me. Well, there definitely is
1: more of that, I think, in Persian culture than there is here. But I think that there's something about the, the writing of this that makes me smile rather than you recognize that you're in with a family in crisis, and yet you get the sense that they have funny, quirky personalities. You know, she comes down from the tree having had this great epiphany, and she's filing her nails. Very calmly, you know, absolutely filing her nails. He recognizes that he hasn't, you know, he's this great man, but yet he hasn't been able to see his wife fly. Now, I wanted to ask you about that, that before we get to them falling in love, so at that point we don't know this, what does the idea of seeing mom in flight mean?
0: For me, it's seeing her as herself mom has a lot on her shoulders um now we don't know if she always had or it's it, you know recent events in losing her son have made her seem like that to us but it feels like she's maybe lost a bit of herself and, and dad hasn't seen her as she as he thinks she is or knows she is
1: So a kind of with my western head on i want to put her into kind of he hasn't been able to see her as her full self as you say but then you know it is it's kind of amusing that he sees her as the one person in the family that can interact with supernatural creatures. And so I wonder if by flight, he means like in full throw of, I mean, I don't actually as a reader think he wants to see her fly, physically fly, But I wonder if what he's saying is that he hasn't yet to see her have this great epiphany. And now he's, now he's seen it. Now he's seen her connect with the other world or have a great moment of wisdom or something. The great thing about that writing is that there are three or four different ways you can read that sentence. And you know, he'd never been fortunate enough. So there's something in that too, but fortunate enough to see her in flight. So he's not saying, oh, she's nuts. He's saying, this is the moment where I'm fortunate enough to see her connect with that which is in her already, that which I always knew about her, that she has some great spiritual depth or supernatural ability. Whereas, you know, in lots of circumstances, you could see the husband rolling his eyes and going, here she goes again, or oh, now she's really lost the plot. He's actually saying, aha, here she is. Yeah, this is the thing that I always knew was there, which I think tells us a lot more about him than it does about her.
0: Because so far, we don't really know that much about her, do we? No, just before we leave that point, I love the list of skills that he gives himself. (laughs) The skilled guitar player and source of family silkworm production and indisputable air of the ability to interact with creatures. You know, these are the things that he's putting on his CV.
1: I mean, I think he's really funny so far. And it's not that unusual, I would say. You know, my experience when I was younger and in the 70s with a Persian men is that they are big characters and they hold a very specific position in the family. And although the Western world, I think, quite often sees that as a position of power, and unfortunately at the moment in the law in Iran makes it so, I don't think it's necessarily that; that. They just tend to be big characters whose personalities are larger than life in lots of cases. And that, I definitely think that's true here. And women have their own kind of larger than life characteristics too. They just tend to group more together with women, if that makes sense. So those relationships are much more in, in with the women's culture. And so, you know, my memories of seeing aunties and my grandma and Mama Bazork. Together in kitchens and picking herbs and having a cackle of a laugh and gossiping about the neighbors or whatever it is and big big characters yeah but they they were always in relation to one another the women whereas the men were the big characters in their own right so and I really think that's true of him but I like him you know I'm not angry with him I like him
0: I like the description of the silkworm production weaving silkworm dreams and dreaming of butterflies and again some funny moments in there unbeknownst to them, were drowned and boiled in a big vat. Now, it's not really very funny. I'm not quite sure why I'm laughing. It probably shouldn't be. Well, because you don't see it um, coming. But yeah. that just just made me laugh.
1: I think there's something there too, you know, which is, I suppose, interesting or possibly dangerous in the sense that it is a statement about different stratas of the culture as well, you know, that there are those who are doing carpet weaving and then there's, you know, the sellers and the wealthy and then there are the people in the dark who are doing the work and who can't come out even for the light of day and I don't know where this family fits in there but there is a statement there about not even working class you know those who are funding the work of him is funding the rest of the society that's a brave thing to put in there and but I think it's saying something that you could extrapolate out
0: and and apply across lots of different cultures yeah of course yeah you know there's familiarity in in those ideas and those thoughts that...
1: and you know it's true yeah as you say and Lots and lots of places, and and it was true in the Western world as well, um, in the states, and the, um, I dare say probably in this place too. You know, until not that long ago, you know that lots of the, the buildings and the things and the uh, that we see that we consider part of our culture were built on the backs of, you know, the sugar plantations or you know or slavery in the U.S. It's still within within memory and within sight, but you know it, it does make you think, particularly when I, because my house is full of Persian carpets, when you sit on a carpet, who made it? And some of them, you know, are so fine that they can only have been made by children, because their hands are small enough to do the knotting. So, you know, there's that kind of mix of knowing what you're you're living with. But also, on the other side, the value of that, so not value of that labor, but they are highly valued objects. Not that it makes it any better, but it's different than the kind of T-shirt you might buy from Primark that you'll throw away, but it is a really interesting kind of question that it brings up. And carpets, we could talk about carpets forever. We better leave it. But you know, there is that kind of question I think brought in in you know very skillfully in one paragraph and then just left. But then let's talk about Dad and Mom's hilarious courting.
0: I'm not even sure we can call it a courting. I think it's a whirlwind dance down the aisle. Yeah, but I'm not even sure
1: she's in. You know, she's in the game. I think I love the description of her. Falling so in love that um, that forevermore she's full of sighs. I love that. I know. I know I shouldn't laugh, but I find it really amusing for some reason.
0: Oh, it's sad, though, because she obviously had to forsake her true love because it didn't fit with whatever plan there was for her.
1: Yeah, well, and I think there's probably... You know, that's true in every culture and and certainly true in a place like Iran where the families... But what makes me laugh is, you know, quite often what would happen is the families wouldn't agree or for various reasons they would get in the middle. When my dad um, was a young man, I think his family had a couple of suggestions of people he might marry. I don't think he was keen on that. But then he disappeared off to America and my mum always says that it says a lot about that family that when he appeared back years later with a wife... And children in tow, and not only a wife, but an American wife, an American blonde wife who didn't speak any Farsi. You know, the family just took her in and were really not just accepting of her, but incredibly including of her and welcoming of her. That it says a lot about them, but also that he could do that as the eldest boy in the family because they needed him. You know, they needed him as much as much more than he needed them, and so there was a position of power there as the oldest son. That although he should have done what his parents wanted him to do, you know, they needed him. Um, So I wonder, too, about dad's position in the family and that he is in a position to be able to do this and say, I'm going to go and introduce you to my family now that I've done this thing without any worry that they're going to say, out of our house, we never want to see you again. There's something about power in that statement that would not have been true for her mom. And I don't think we can see that culturally from the place that we're sitting, but it's absolutely true, I think in Iran, that boys do things and the families just have to accept it in a way that women can be disowned. It takes a lot, I think, to be, I don't know what it would take to be disowned as a a son. So that's, for me, I can see the gender mix there and I can see a power that maybe isn't as, as apparent to other people.
0: Shall we read on and finish the chapter?
1: Despite all of mom and dad's strange qualities, my favorite family member is my father's little brother, Khosrow. As I was building my treehouse, I recalled that he was able to turn any task into a mystical ritual. The second of three children, each born three years apart, he had proven himself to be the most befitting heir to the family mania. He spent a year in prison under Mohammad Reza Shah, two years under Khomeini, married, divorced, spent three years in self-imposed exile at home to study 79 volumes of Indian and East Asian mysticism and learn Sanskrit. After spending three days and nights lying in an empty grave in a Tibetan cemetery reading the Vedas, he levitated one meter up of the ground while practicing Osho meditation. He lived for a month in a wooden boat in the middle of a Siberian lake as instructed by a shaman, while weaving a branch in and out of the others to form a wall for my treehouse and thinking about Uncle Khosrow's craziness, I was overcome by a moment of despair. There was nothing new and different left in the world for me to do. We had to wait for Uncle Khosrow, because in any case, it was he who was the most likely to understand mom. He was an experienced searcher, the exact opposite of me and us. We were just beginning. As I was building my tree house and thinking about all Uncle Josro had done, and Mom's unexpected enlightenment and ascension atop the green gauge and oak trees, a surprise summer rain began to fall that continued for three days and nights. It would have turned me into a scaly reptilian creature that feeds on algae, rotten fruit, and moss, if Beta like a fallen angel with her orange umbrella and pleated sky-blue skirt hadn't appeared to take me back into the house. At sunset on the fifth day, in the silence of the grove and awaiting the arrival of Uncle Khosrow, or news of Sohrab, my treehouse was completed. So I love this description of the crazy uncle, um, I don't know about you, but everybody's got a crazy family member. I best not talk about mine for fear of getting in trouble. And I love the fact that Uncle Hosro is on the father's side, but he will be the one to understand mother. And it's really common in Iran to marry your cousin so I know that's something that's kind of unheard of and kind of makes you wonder or shudder in this culture, but it's really, really common. So we don't actually know how connected the, the mother and the father are. It's possible that they're even first cousins. So it could be that they are connected in some some broader way as well. But I love this description of him as being the crazy one, but also, you know, an experienced searcher.
0: And how that is the exact opposite of the narrator or the narrator's family. That, that made me stop and think, okay, what is the opposite of a searcher? Is it someone who stops where they are and stays where they are and doesn't look beyond the moment that they're in?
1: Or I wonder too whether it was that idea of having many lives, you know, if it was a different kind of religious principle that my mum used to always say people were old souls or young souls and then Uncle Khosra was obviously an older soul and that we were just out beginning out. So we didn't have any sense of that at all. But I like the idea that she's not able to work it out for herself. So she's got to start, sit and wait for someone to come and explain.
0: I love the litany of of his life experience that have formed him into being a crazy one. And the way it's so cross-cultural. I mean, we've got reading the Vedas, Tibet, we've got Sanskrit, we've got... I just love the way it just... He's proper crazy because he's done it all.
1: Yeah, and in a time when we would think you would get, you know, shot for being anything other than Muslim... He's off doing all these kind of crazy things, which I think is brilliant. That counters that idea that we have of Iran as being very kind of locked down and terrifying if he's able to go off and do these things. But maybe because he spent time in prison, he just doesn't actually care anymore.
0: It made me think that he'd somehow managed to find a way to be below the radar. Maybe he has mystical powers where he can make himself invisible.
1: Yeah, or maybe, you know, because he's been in prison under both regimes, no one sees him as a threat anymore or sees him as, yeah, I don't know. But I love too that idea that it's hard our favorite uncle. <laughs> Those people in my family were also my favorites because they brought this kind of real, you know, energy and excitement and the unknown into the family. Whereas, you know, in my family, they would arrive and other family members would roll their eyes like, oh, there he goes again. Whereas as children, we were like, ha ha, it's so exciting. It's different and not the usual plodding thing that we always
0: anticipate, you know, that we can kind of see coming. And it feels a bit like he's the inspiration for the treehouse.
1: And there's a moment there when she's talking about weaving a branch in and out of the others, um, which made me think of, you know, when I was talking earlier about the Caspian Sea and spending days on the beach there. What was funny is that my mum is so fair as a blonde American, her skin couldn't take the heat. And so every summer, this structure was built for her, which four trees were felled from the wood and cut cut down. And they were the four sort of, you know, Uh, Corners and then their branches were woven together. In This very similar, I can picture it this kind of weave to make a wall, but in their case, it was a roof which was set atop and tied to those four trunks, really. And that was her shelter for the summer, and it stayed all summer long because it was set far enough back that the tide didn't affect it. So, she there are all the pictures of that time in our family's life where of her sitting under the shelter playing backgammon, drinking tea, and everything out of the sun, whereas the rest of us were out running around. But it made me think of that I that practice of weaving, you know, things together to make a wall or a roof. It just brought back that very very kind of really rustic way in the way that kids do now you know is in the wood Um, Near here a few days ago, and somebody had obviously been in making what I think of as kind of teepee structures around trees and had been weaving things together. That idea that you can make something from nothing, even if you're 13. So she's not a shy, scaredy child for sure.
0: No, she's in the highest branch of the tallest oak tree, nailing things together. Oh, nailing and sawing and hammering. And determined to stay, you know,
1: but also a little grateful that she's rescued because it sounds like she would have stayed. Yeah.
0: And and the the idea that if she had stayed, she would have turned into a scaly, reptilian creature. You know, her, her imagination and mind and storytelling, it feels like she's got her own voice to do that. She's not just telling the stories that she's heard. She is a storyteller in her own right. Maybe that's the opposite of a searcher.
1: Yeah, maybe maybe the one who stays and stays put and, ta- and does the telling. Because often you, you think that writers or storytellers are even though they're so loud when they're telling the stories if they're oral storytellers, are often the quietest ones in the room because they're gathering their material. And that's a weaving of sorts as well, isn't it? Pulling together different threads of things to make some sense of them for the rest of the world. And the end of the chapter is really telling in the sense that we're waiting for Uncle Khosrow to arrive, but also news of Sohrab. So as a reader, we know what's happened. But the people in the story don't. So we're reminded that although we're party to some awful information, they're still in a kind of hanging in that tree in a kind of position of waiting in a kind of moment, a kind of gap between things, if that makes sense. You know, just kind of holding on, hanging in midair, waiting. So levitating in a kind of different way. So I think those images really, really lock up for me. That The idea of sitting in a tree and waiting, hanging in midair, you're left hanging. And as a reader, it's an interesting decision to bring us in before those in the story are. And I doubt in my head that will those in the story will ever know, because that that's the experience of family and friends that they don't. I wonder what that will tell us about what's to come.
0: And I think it, it has the effect as well of of placing Sorap front and centre right again where he was right at the very beginning of the book in the in the very first paragraph. And that he's maybe drifted from our consciousness a little bit when we've been hearing about mom and dad's meeting and about the silkworms and about the uncle. But the effect of putting him in that last sentence in the chapter puts him right back in the forefront of the story for me.
1: Yeah. And in that same way that you, there's, when there's an absence in a family, you can work really hard to try and cover it or but you but it never goes away you know it's always there hanging even if you're not speaking about it and so for me as you say come back front and center but also all this banging and clanging and climbing up a tree and all this effort and exertion has ended with being reminded that that absence is still there and that hasn't really worked the treehouse is completed and he's still missing we don't know if that was the intention, or at least the conscious intention, but as you say, right back front and center, there's an absence. That's where we're left at the end of this first chapter, waiting, waiting of news, and waiting for someone to make sense of it, for the person who might be able to make sense of things for them.
0: I'm really looking forward to um, hearing, watching your event. In the next couple of days, and uh, you know, to t- actually hearing the authors' take on things.
1: Me too. Like, me too. I think it'll be a real joy for me to connect with someone who has that understanding and can kind of flesh out some of that for us. And and to hear a little bit of it read in the voice of the person who wrote it always makes a big difference, too. You know, I don't. Yeah, you know, we've talked about that a lot when we go to events. Things come alive when the authors read them. We we'll get we'll get some of the answers from the author herself. And then you can all tell us whether we were wrong, <laughs> which will be really nice too. It's lovely that um, in the open book way, we get to make decisions about things, whether we know or don't know that they're right or wrong. That's the lovely thing about open book and literature in general, is that you get to decide once the author's written it and sent it out into the world. So.
0: I think that's all from us today. Um... Thank you for having us in your ears again, and we look forward to hearing from you uh, to hear about your highlights of the Book Festival this year.